0: Fantastic.
1: Okay, so hello everyone. I'm Cheryl, your host for today's episode of the Bartlett School of Architecture's Lightbulb Moments podcast series. Today with me is Chris Hildry, who graduated from the Bartlett MArch program in 2009 and has since started his own design practice, Hildry Studio. He's the founder of the widely publicized project Proxy Address, which has won the Reba President's Medal for research as well as the nomination for the beastly design of the year in 2019 so welcome chris and thanks again for taking time to speak with me this evening we are really delighted to have thank you, you chris. all right um so thank may- you great to be here <laughs> i'll start off um by asking so on behalf of the listeners who may not know what is proxy address
0: So proxy address is, um, it's really a system. And it's a system to give people who are facing homelessness, um, a a consistent address that they can use to access services and support that they might might need. And what it looks to do is kind of overcome a catch 22 that people face when they're homeless, which is that when you lose your home, uh, you not only lose your shelter, but you also lose your address. And, And with it, uh, effectively you'll lose your identity because the address system that we use in the UK has kind of shifted from being a way to, to organize and, and navigate the built environment to a way to um, to effectively a de facto form of ID. And so once you lose that little piece of information, um, you lose access to those things that might help you recover in the early stages of homelessness and so you know you at the moment you lose access to those things you need, because of the very reason you need them. So, so proxy address gets around that and that kind of unlocks that situation and allows
1: people to more easily recover from homelessness. Okay. So I think quite a big question. I was wondering when I first heard about this project is that so applicants of proxy address will be matched with an address from one of the roughly 500,000 houses currently empty in England, but aren't there various privacy related risks Involved when property owners lease the addresses to a complete stranger? Because um, I would assume that if I own a property, don't I own that address as well? And isn't it quite risky if I lease or give this address to someone else, even though it's just a proxy?
0: Well, it's a very good question because um, w- the original idea was that, like that was the concept. And then as with most concepts, they get kind of whittled down through reality and they end up with something a bit more precise. Um, so the first step was to make sure that, as you say, you know, there's uh, around 500,000 empty homes in England, but um, we stick to the 250,000 ones that have been vacant for more than six months, which is kind of long-term vacant. Um, but also in terms of, you know, ownership, that was a real crux of the project, which is, which is that question, you know, what is an address? Because when you buy a house or any property, you don't own the address. You know, I mean, if you've ever received a piece of mail that you didn't explicitly that somebody used your address without your permission. And also the address is by definition the, the most public information we have in the built environment. All you need to do is go to any street, look at the road name on the corner, look at the, the number on the door and you have the address. Not only that, but you also have the location. Uh, you can shout it out loud, and you don't break GDPR rules. Um, so legally, and I did a lot of work on this um, to, to establish it legally. There was no reason why we couldn't use, you know, addresses that had been vacant. But in reality, what I found was that when we're dealing with large stakeholders who are, are typically quite risk averse, you have to factor in the the kind of reputational risk that might put people off from engaging with this. So. You know, essentially, this becomes another form of design question, which is that, you know, how do you turn something from concept to reality? And that was one of the many decisions I faced where what I did was I made it so that we only use addresses that come with explicit consent. So that means we saw some, I mean, the empty, empty homes are one of the sources. We also have things like um, when projects are in construction and you have uh, addresses or even temporary addresses for the purposes of construction. We can use those while they're not being used. Uh, council owned properties as well and they don't even need to be vacant because essentially you're duplicating the use of the address. It has no impact on the original at all either. Um, but also personal donations, you know, you could give somebody a fiver on the street, let them get a coffee and a sandwich, but you could also for free allow us to give them your address um, and help them make much more structural changes to their life. So you know, in a sense the address is just a piece of public information where the, the street names and numbers are created by the council. The postcode by the Royal Mail, and you know it, it's it's public information. How you treat it really comes down to to what people are willing to do. And in this case, what what people are willing to do is work with with uh, explicit consent. So that's what we do.
1: Okay. Um. So where are you now with the project?
0: So we're currently in a live pilot uh, in Lewisham, and. It's an interesting phase at the moment because with Proxy Address, it's kind of, it's moved me into this strange place I never thought I'd be, which is kind of into the sort of tech startup world. And it's a very different world from architecture. You know, architecture is quite, you know, linear and it's sort of career progression and it's quite um, set and it's quite a narrow beam of, of, of focus in terms of, you know, typically and the traditional role is doing just buildings, whereas in the tech startup, it's, it's so diverse. And um, ironically, I meet lots of people who call themselves architects, but they're data architects or systems architects. Um, and one of the interesting things is that in the startup world, there is this accelerated notion of progress and growth. You, know, it is, you have to build quickly and fix it later. You, know, you don't worry about problems until you, you have the time to go back around and fix it. But I think one of the things that's really benefited me from architecture is is a sense of, you know, perhaps patience over getting something right, because especially with something like proxy when you're working with vulnerable people. What what we can't do is get it wrong and fix it later, like we can't risk having to turn around to people and say, you know, you can't access your GP for three weeks, because we need to fix a bug in the system so with that. I decided that this first pilot, which is, you know, first pilot is always a very crucial step in the system. But in most times, people start with kind of the easiest problem and then they work up to the next biggest and then they work up to the next biggest. With with this one, I decided to start with the very hardest problem, which, um, you know, as as kind of was, you know, potentially implied by your earlier question, is is an issue of fraud. You know, we have to comply with anti-fraud measures. And the hardest thing you can do to comply with anti-fraud measures is open a bank account. You have huge issues around funding of terrorism, around anti-money laundering, and around know your customer. And what I could have done is picked an easy thing to start with and worked up to that. But I decided that, no, what we need to do is almost build this more like a pyramid where the first layer takes the longest and, you you know, takes the most amount of work. And then the next layer after that is a bit easier and then a bit easier again and a bit easier again. And so that's what we're doing. And the thing with the pyramid is obviously, you know, by doing that, you make it incredibly robust, but also the longer you spend on that first layer, the higher the peak can go. And so this pilot took a lot of work to, to get it in place. So it's it's overseen by the Financial Conduct Authority who regulate the, the financial um, um, sector in the UK. Um, we've got banks on board with who we are setting up um, Bank accounts for people who are homeless um, and have no address, including Barclays, Monzo Money's. And then we've also got partners like The Big Issue, where we can start to help them get their vendor network onto, you know, get them bank accounts so they can take contactless payments and all these things. And so, yeah, so we're running live at the moment. And uh, this will go on for, you know, a few months yet. And um, it's a really good experience to get the feedback from people who are who are going through the system uh, we've had some fantastic feedback you know I mean I spoke to one person the other day who said it had changed his life which is you know you can't even begin to explain how, how nice that is to hear when when somebody says that about something that you kind of nurtured from nothing um, and really we need to just sort of run through this pilot assess it both quantitatively and quant- qualitatively um, and then we, we expand from there and so um you know ultimately that the aim is to make this a a national infrastructure where essentially if you lose your home you don't have to be severed from support you can still recover because in most cases despite what is a common assumption about homelessness that you know it's caused by mental health or substance abuse in most cases that's not true uh in most cases the number one cause of homelessness in the uk today is an eviction and actually most people who Start becoming homeless. Uh, at becoming homeless, they can recover if they're just given access to that support at an early stage. But currently, when you when you face that that one milestone, you you have a cliff face. And my argument is that it's much easier to build a bridge from one point of stability to the next, rather than let people fall off a cliff face and have to drag them bo- back up from the bottom of, of a ravine. You know. Um, so yeah, ideally it will end up as a national thing and then you know potentially international down the line let's see how it goes
1: yeah i think i'm hopeful it will become really something amazing and i think touching upon something you said earlier in your response you mentioned that there's a huge difference in speed working on something which is sim- more closely related to a startup versus something versus an architectural project which typically takes a very long period of time um so i understand that hildry studios does both proxy address, which is one of your projects, as well as other actual built projects. So does this huge difference in speed um, affect the way your practice is actually the way that your practice runs or and other points where knowledge or skill sets crossover between two of this kind of projects?
0: I mean, absolutely. I mean, in, in a sense, that is that's kind of the 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 reasoning behind my setting up the studio, Um, really, what I've always wanted to do, you know, I always wanted to have my own studio like a lot of people, but in a sense, it was informed by almost by some of my frustrations with architectural practice in, in a way, you know, I think when I went through university. I was really excited by not only the subject matter but also the skills involved and the sheer sort of nimbleness that's involved in being a student of having to learn so many different things um, and then in a sense when, when I moved into practice what I found is that all those skills were then being focused through this lens of practice into into just one output which is buildings and it can be quite a jarring transition I think you know especially if you go from doing some you know intricate, um fantastical project in in masters to then doing you know toilet schedules for three years or something that can be quite a jarring thing so a lot of people do side projects and and similar to to keep that part of their brain going but my my reasoning was that you know architect like why shouldn't we turn those side projects if you like into into part of what an architecture practice does um and and when i looked at architecture as a you know, as, a, as an industry, as a profession. Uh, and I did, a you know, after my master's, I did a, a research degree at the Bartlett after that, kind of looking into this issue of the pra- into practice. And, and what I found is that, you know, architectural practice is suffering a lot. And, and the reasons that I found for it aren't things that are going away. So my argument was, you know, if I'm frustrated by the somewhat lack of diverse output from architecture, and architecture, with its singular output, is is sort of struggling. Then why not diversify how we apply the skills that we already come out of university with? And really, that's why I decided to do lots to, to sort of open myself up to doing things that are buildings and things that aren't. Because, you know, ultimately, I think a lot of a lot of people that I speak to got into architecture because at, at a fundamental level, you want to make the world a better place. You know, it's it's quite an optimistic profession in that sense, and. And if you see something that is, you, know, you identify as a problem, and as designers, you, know, you can't help but see a problem and start to think about how you might want to, to address that. A building isn't always the, the best way to address that problem. You know, Buildings are incredibly time-intensive, material-intensive, and cost-intensive. Sometimes you need something else. And, and I found that me as an architect, when it comes to homelessness, as an example, you know, I didn't have the agency as an architect to, to affect housing policy. Uh, I would design what I was asked to design. I wouldn't be telling anybody what, what was going to be built. And, and so it was my way of using the skills uh, and my understanding of the built environment in a way that wasn't a building. And similarly, you know, th- through the built works, uh, we have a, a, uh, a homeless shelter, um, a very big project in a Grade two list of building in central London you know, that is a way that a building can help. Um, and then also there's, there's other things like some of the sort of more um, enjoyable kind of, well, not more enjoyable, but more kind of like, um, uh, more kind of free design exercises, like, you know, graphic coding and things like that, that are skills that I had and, and, you know, applying those to doing music videos and things like that. You know, it's these kind of things that might be side projects for architects That I think, you know, let's wrap it all together. And, you know, for me, all this work is very architectural. It's using my skills as an architect. It's just not always buildings. And, you know, for me that that personally, I think that that suits me and it suits my approach to architecture as
1: well. Okay, so, um, you've mentioned that proxy address is a system uh, which is really different from an actual materialized building and you have mentioned that sometimes constructing a building is not the best solution. So how far do you think architects of the future will be engaged in proposing non-building solutions, such as system, such as what you've done? Or do you think a majority of both old and new practices will be sticking to traditional moods of practice, which is primarily building?
0: Um, Yeah, I I would imagine that the majority will, will sort of continue in a sense you know that changes like that have a degree of inertia to to changing you know well, a profession has a degree of inertia to changing direction uh suddenly um i mean what i would say is that you know i think it's fine to have a diverse approach you know people who want to just do buildings i don't think there's anything wrong with that um personally i think you know in terms of a, a business case it can be extremely punishing i mean the research that i did after my master's when it was into unpaid overtime in architecture and the, the causes and the effects of that. And I think, you know, well, first of all, it was always interesting thing that up in job interviews, but, um, you know, when you look at unpaid overtime, it really sort of undermines a lot of the the, the, the performance, if you like, uh, of of the profession. So I think just doing buildings has its own problems and I think it will continue to, de- to have those problems. Um, But if somebody wants to do that, I don't think that's a problem. What I would say is that I think the the students who are coming through now are, you know, I think there is a bit of a generational gap in a sense. Because, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to sort of grow up and be, you know, still young when sort of the Internet was kicking off with, you know, old 56k modems and stuff. And so, like, I was getting exposed at quite a young age to the Internet, to coding, to HTML, CSS and JavaScript and all that stuff. That was hitting me quite young, and and so I saw that as as a feasible tool in my toolbox. I think for, for those who are already kind of entrenched in architecture as a traditional um, as a traditional practice, then I I wouldn't expect many people in that position to to sort of take the time to have to you know learn that as a tool. But I think students who are coming through now, you know, obviously we have a huge, incredibly high degree of computer literacy across students because they're using things like 3D Max and Rhino and all this stuff. Um, And some people want to apply that to parametricism, that's fine. Some people end up applying it to, you know, Revit and and coordinating, you know, built projects in a a very um, complex way. And some people might turn that knowledge across to coding. And, And I think, yeah, I think you will see that number, the amount of people who do see it as a feasible way um, a feasible alternative to a built answer to a problem increase, um, but I think it will take time. I, I think just you know, as with a lot of these things, as as generations you know flow through the system, we will, we will see the character of the profession shift as the character as the character of the people who make up the profession
1: shifts. Okay, um, so at the Bartlett, some of our students have chosen to engage with actual individuals or communities as part of our design projects because we believe that sometimes better infrastructure would go a long way to help them. And sometimes these communities are facing predicaments that we as students have not experienced before. So you have mentioned in other interviews that you have not experienced homelessness before, but still you have managed to put forward and develop a viable and dignified solution. So what would be your advice for students looking to work with actual groups of people as part of their own projects without coming across as patronizing or we're still developing a response that comes from such an angle?
0: Mm, Yeah, very good question. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, do not be put off by the fact you don't have personal experience of of something. For me, I think that the most patronizing response to a situation like that is to assume that you will be received negatively because you, you know, you haven't shared that experience with somebody. Um, I think, you know, design, Designers often talk about the importance of empathy in a design, but I think more important than empathy is, is a degree of sympathy, you know, is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes when you haven't lived in that position yourself. And the most important thing in those situations is is to listen, you know? I mean, I went into this, I think one of the most important early steps I had in proxy address was acknowledging my own naivety. And the way to get around that, wasn't to to try and dodge my naivety but was to in in a sense embrace it and just get out there and say to people like look i'm trying to do something about this I, i mean obviously i had the start of an idea so it wasn't just like you know asking with a blank slate but with that start of an idea asking like what would be the problems that you see with this you know and and that continues to this day, you know, with people who are going through this live pilot at the moment, we're getting feedback that's completely valuable um, from people who just have experienced things that I would never have thought of. And, you know, whatever the subject matter, um, if you if you are looking to help and. You are doing so in good faith, I, I think you won't find you know any problem, I, I think. sometimes you might get a bit of um, resistance because I think there is a bit of a, this is only something that I found stepping out of architecture into into proxy addresses is sometimes there is a bit of stigma around people from a design background when you're talking to people from a, a much more kind of business or logistical background. And I think that stigma can be that they imagine a designer to be somebody who has a vision of the world and expects to kind of declare that vision and everybody else to to shift and adapt to meet that vision. Um, The way I overcame that was by by making sure to to see this as a design problem, you know, like if you have a vision that doesn't suit reality, that's not good design, you know? And ultimately it was a lot of research on my part, Uh, but also it was going to people and saying, you know, what would be the stumbling blocks for you? What are the obstacles to to what I'm proposing? And again, just listening. And then that becomes the brief. In a sense, you know, that is like, you have to create your own brief. That's almost the first part of the design project is creating the brief by speaking to people and listening to what their, their issues are. And then you can work around those constraints. And that's where the good design comes in. How do you navigate around that and do so in a way that retains... The kind of the fidelity, of the original concept, and the degree of elegance, and the trajectory through which you navigate those issues. Um, so yeah, I, I would say don't don't be afraid to do it. Um, don't be afraid to, to speak to people. If you get faced with you know, um, I, I think if you get faced with some degree of resistance, then you know try try again um, because the more you try, the more you refine your own. Kind of language when addressing people and and going to people and and knowing in what order to explain what you're doing is you know um i found you know for 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 instance in frontline charity workers uh sometimes i mean they're so busy they're so underfunded and they're quite fairly skeptical of people coming in saying you know oh i'm going to come in and have an idea and so you know if you just start that conversation off as an example by 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 saying you know you have the expertise in this conversation i'm here to just try and find out some expertise if you have the time you know that's that kind of puts you immediately on like puts your cards on the table and says like you're here to 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 understand more and i think you know as long as you do that um, then there shouldn't be an issue and you should never refrain from from trying to help in a situation that you've not experienced yourself um because you know in, in reality that if we could only help with situations we we've experienced ourselves, then it would be an incredibly um, divided set of set of you know set of of activity trying
1: to help. Um, so yeah, I would say dive right in. Yep. Yeah. Um, if you had the opportunity to speak to your student self, what three messages of advice would you give? Or rather, like how many? It's up to you, I guess. <laughs> um. I mean, I think
0: looking back on my student days was almost as educational as, you know, my experience during my student days, because information comes at you at such a pace. Uh, it's quite hard to take it all in. You've, you still digest it for like a decade afterwards. So, um, I mean, I think one of the key pieces of advice I would have given myself is to to listen to my instinct more. Um, to yeah, to listen to my instinct more, you know, I, I, I spent a long time when I would have a project and I would think about what, what does, you know, the tutor want to see from this? Um, and I think, you know, in, in the barlet in, in my fourth year in the barlet, I had a great pair of tutors, um, um, Peter Strapaniak and John Puttick, and they had a, a fantastic um, talent for not, not sort of setting a specific style or mode of output, but in extracting from each student what they wanted and getting the very best of of that student's work, you know? Um, And that was a real eye opener for me because that allowed myself the, or kind of forced myself into a position of having to listen to, to, to what it was I wanted to do. It's a very hard thing and it takes time, but I think, you know, listening to your own instincts is number one um I would say another one is don't worry too much about being original um that's a crippling thing that I think a lot of students can can be or I certainly as a student kind of got you know what's called paralysis by analysis you know if you if you start doing something and then uh, you think well this first footstep isn't original enough and actually you know over time you come to realize that you know Almost nothing is original, you know, actually contemporary thought is formed by standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and it's, it's useful to imbibe a lot of, you know, precedents and things like that, but put it through the filter of your own experiences and, and, you know, and don't worry too much about being original. Like if, if you, if you make a proposal and it's still close to the other thing, then work through it again. You know, there's this great phrase or a great quote, um, from, um, Jean Luc Godard, I think it is, which is, um it's not where you take it from; it's where you take it to. And I think that's an very important lesson for students, like, 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 absolutely, like, just you know, in terms of your own notebook, plagiarize everything, just, just get it down there and use it as practice. But it's where you take it to after that. Use those as ingredients to filter through your own reflections and experiences to then take it forward. And I suppose that would really lead to a third one, which is that. Uh, um which kind of combines the two previous ones, but it, it's it's this idea that to try and understand yourself more as well. <clears throat> because you know, part of being paralyzed by a, a need to be original or part of um, you know, part, part of, of trying to trust your own instincts, I think I think it comes down to, to, to the fact that, the most original thing that anybody will experience is, is themselves. You know, it, if you can manage to, to kind of feed your own creativity from different sources, whether it be, you know, music or film or books or, you know, any, any kind of media or any kind of experience or spatial experience that you have, you know, just remember the things that touch you and affect you and like, or excite you. And those things kind of start to give you your own sense of who you are. And you know, if, if you constantly try and think like, you know, oh, I like the look of this building, I want to do a building like that. It, it's understanding what it is that you like about that building that's a really critical part because then you really start to understand yourself and what what actually you know turns your wheels. And once you understand or get a better sense of understanding of those things then you're able to start to to use that as i kind of mentioned earlier as, as almost a filter for ideas and make sure that you're steering towards something that you're and ultimately if <clears throat> if you're doing that through your own experiences it can only be an original thing because it's it's your your life that is is contributing to it you know and and you will end up you know, almost being a black box where you're, you're, you've got an input of all the things that you seek out. You put it through your own filter that is your own experiences, your own opinions, your own preferences that have built up over your entire life. And you use that as a basis to output something that it is, will will always be something that you enjoy, that, that you believe in, um, and that, you know, hasn't happened before. So those three things together, I think, uh, something that I wish I had done. Uh, I wish I'd known all of those three things back when I was a student, because I I, I, I think I learned those through error rather than through practice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with what you said. Um, I think it really, um, I agree. That those things really do help, It's given my own experience in school as well. And I think we've run out okay. of time. So thank you so much again for sharing your insights and thoughts with us. So I imagine that some students would like to find out more about your work. Where could they go to find out more?
0: Uh, so they can go to uh, hildrystudio.com uh, or proxyaddress.com. Uh, both of those will, uh, Hildry Studio is kind of the, you know, the main design studio, if you like, um, where you'll see all of the, the projects there. Um, and ProxyDress is, you know, obviously a bit of a deep dive into ProxyDress and what we're doing with that. Um, and it has a lot of information about the project there as well.
1: All right. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great speaking with you. Brilliant. And you too. Thank you.